we need to deal with the polarization of politics because things are not just black and white. They are complex. And the habit of polarization, where you will give absolutely no credit to your opponent for an element of what he or she is putting forward, it's going to make a bad situation even worse. And what I would like to see, although I don't have much hope of it at the moment, is that I would like to see the election campaign fought in a much more understanding, tolerant, and dare I say a Christian way. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Tony Wilson and a writer for Premier Christianity magazine, the sponsors of this show. As well as publishing the most widely read Christian monthly magazine in the UK, Premier Christianity has a daily feed of online news, opinion and reviews on their website, premierchristianity.com. This week on The Profile, it's a great pleasure to introduce Sir Robert Rogers, or more properly, Lord Liz Vane, who sits as a crossbencher in the House of Lords, specialising in constitutional matters. He sits on the Parliamentary Ecclesiastical Committee and currently chairs the Lords Committee on AI and Weapon Systems. Having joined the House of Commons service in 1972, Sir Robert worked his way to become clerk to the House between 2011 and 2014. He lives in Herefordshire with his wife Jane, who is an Anglican priest and rural dean. Sir Robert chairs the Fabric Committee of Hereford Cathedral, is a church organist, and somehow finds time to be Deputy Lieutenant of Herefordshire. Lord Lisvane, welcome to the profile. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be taking part. So we normally like to start the profile by going back to the formative years of, of a guest's life. But I think some people might be wondering a little bit about what the clerk of the House of Commons is. Now, we'll unpack that in some detail later. But somebody might have in mind a person sitting in a dusty sort of Dickensian office, um, scribing away in the Palace of Westminster. And I think uh, it's a little bit different from that. So if you could give us the very briefest introduction to the role of the clerk of the House of Commons. Right. Um, the office dates from 1363. And originally, uh, we were called clerks because we were priests. We were clerks in holy orders. And in the 14th century, uh, the priests could read and write and the members couldn't. But as I speak to you today, of course, this situation has been uh, uh, benignly uh, altered, <laughs> and but we've kept the name clerk. Um, the clerk of the house is the principal constitutional advisor to the house and advisor on all its business and procedure and so on. Uh, fortunately, of course, the clerk, and I certainly did, has a lot of extremely clever uh, and able people to help him do that job. Um, he's also uh, chief executive, so in charge, head of the House of Commons service of about two and a half thousand people with a budget of about, uh, well, in my day, about a quarter of a billion. It's a bit more now. Uh, and also is the corporate officer, which uh, is, as anybody who's been a corporate officer knows, the Manslaughter and Corporate Homicide Act uh, places some pretty serious duties on a corporate officer to keep everybody safe. And while it was as corporate officer, I owned 
uh, I was the legal owner of all the house's property, which was quite agreeable to have this property portfolio in London SW1. At the same time, uh, when something goes wrong, and if there is negligence uh, leading to damage or death, then it is the corporate officer who is in the dock. So it would be fair to say it was a role with some responsibility. I, I, I had no idea that, that Clark and Cleric uh, come from the same root. It, it would seem that they share a root uh, linguistically there. But l- let's find out a, a bit more about your early life. You were born in South Wales and spent a lot of your youth in, in rural parts of, the, of Wales and England. I, I wonder if you could paint us a picture of family life for you in your early years. Well, for 10 years, I was effectively an only child. I was joined by a sister when I was age 10. And um, it was quite a peripatetic life. But also, I didn't see my father very much. Uh, After the the end of the war, uh, he applied for a a regular commission in the Royal Navy. He'd been in the Royal Naval Reserve during the war. And at that stage, despite having fought for six years, they discovered that he was sufficiently colorblind to rule him out of a permanent career in the Royal Navy. So he went into the merchant service, and that, of course, is a fairly disjointed and unpredictable uh, way of life. Um, And as I say, we were pretty peripatetic, Cornwall, Devon, West Wales, Gloucestershire, and and so on. So that was was the background. My uh, mother, uh, very musical, woman, a physiotherapist, uh, was a great early influence on me and my father later on when I saw more of him. And so was there a a faith element to your your upbringing? How would you describe um, the impact of Christianity on on your your home life? I don't think there was a faith element. Um, My parents weren't churchgoers. Uh, They were certainly uh, faithful Christians, but uh, for them, faith was a very private thing. Um, I think my father's war experience, which was um, pretty pretty harrowing one way or another, um, probably strengthened his faith, but in a way made it less likely that he'd talk about it, if you follow me. Um, Rather similar, actually, to my grandfather, who managed to survive three years on the Western Front in the First World War. And uh, he found that pretty harrowing as well. Mm, of course, and, and certainly the impact of the, the war, uh, both the, the, the world wars in, in the 20th century, was significant in terms of peop- the way people approach their faith. And that, that's certainly true. So... Having had this um, rural life, peripatetic as you say, you, you settle in the southeast of England, and in the 1960s, you spent most of that decade in your secondary education uh, at Tunbridge School, a well-known public school. And I imagine that that life there was, in terms of the faith aspect of the life there, would be a fairly traditional diet of chapel with the authorised version of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, I would imagine. Um, talk us through that. How did that land with you? The, the Britain was was swinging in the 60s at the time, uh, and I, I guess Tunbridge School might not have been quite in that same way. <laughs> yes, it's a bit like, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. Um, I certainly was in that rather... Um, I, 
I hesitate to call it monastic, but certainly the, the relatively closed community that uh, is quite distant in culture from us now. You're absolutely right. Um, chapel every day was uh, the center or the starting point of daily life. Uh, the English hymnal, the Book of Common Prayer, and uh, a fairly uh, muscular approach to Christianity, I, I would say. Uh, more broadly, uh, one of the, it was an early development that you had a, uh, an alternative to the combined cadet force of doing, uh, in, in effect, a social service, which uh, again, I think widened people's attitudes, I'm afraid. I was um, very much a member of the combined cadet force and indeed commanded it in my last year. Um, but I enjoyed chapel. I, I'm not sure that too many people really enjoyed it, but I loved it. I love organ music. And uh, I think the English hymnal is a fantastic cultural asset in, in its many forms. I mean, A&M, A&M re revised and, and so on. Um, but wonderful, wonderful tunes and wonderful tunes carrying a message which I you know, carry with me to this day. Uh, in a slightly different role, I find myself playing hymns to congregations. But that was something, as I say, it was a, a starting point, a reference point each day. And it was something which I'm not sure that I thought about it a great deal at the time. But it was certainly, it, it, it fulfilled that role as far as I was concerned throughout my five years at Tunbridge. And then when I went on to, to Oxford, and once again, I found chapel, and uh, I did a lot of choral singing. And of course, that was very often the Bach choir and things of that sort, as well as the chapel choir. Uh, those were very often in uh, interpreting effectively religious texts. So I suppose that was a, a theme that ran through my continuing uh, life and development at that stage. Mm. You chose to use the word muscular for the for the the, the brand of Christianity that you you, you received at, at at chapel at school. It's an interesting word. Could you unpack that a little bit in terms of what you mean by muscular? I think an element of certainty. Uh, I think probably best interpreted through uh, choice of hymns. I mean, we're talking fight the good fight. Kumaranda, um, Jerusalem, and so on. It's that sort of thing. It's not be still for the presence of the Lord. So if you can have a spectrum of hymn approaches, of hymn texts, it was definitely on the uh, rather fiercer side than the rather gentler side. And as a linguist, you, you studied at university Old Norse, Old English, and Medieval Welsh, which sounds very Tolkien-esque to me. So as a linguist, the, the, the language of the authorised version, the language of the Book of Common Prayer was getting under your skin. Would you, would, would you describe it in that kind of way? Well, you're kind to describe me as a linguist. When I'm asked what I read at Oxford, I normally say cricket and acting. But unfortunately, they didn't give degrees in either of those two. Um, but yes, I, I did enjoy. Um, I enjoy language. And I, I still do. Certainly when I was uh, a, a clerk, perhaps supervising a group of select committees, 
the quality of drafting always very high on my list of priorities and getting other people, more junior colleagues, to understand the power of effective drafting and indeed the skills in avoiding political clashes in a select committee that you're trying to keep consensual by the sensitivity of your drafting is a dimension that uh, came, well, I discovered it when I went to the House, but it's something that not everybody does understand. Certainly, just reverting to um, the Book of Common Prayer and the authorised version, yes, th those resonate with me today and always have. And, of course, I can remember huge chunks um, off by heart uh, in latter years, that is, uh, very often sitting in an organ loft listening to a service going on down below me. But I find it, when, when I go to Lambeth Palace, and when you walk through into that main courtyard and you look up to the left and there was Cranmer's study, you know, that's where he did the writing. And uh, I find that uh, numinous. I find it really quite moving. In those university years, again, we're coming towards the end of the decade of the 60s and, and coming into the 70s. You know, a, lot of, a lot of people were rejecting I, chapel, I guess, and, and wouldn't have chosen to go to chapel at university. Uh, and yet something was, was keeping you there. Were you unusual in that respect or was were you part of the crowd? Um, not part of the crowd. I think I'd be more likely to encounter the crowd on the hockey field or the cricket pitch. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people, a lot of people did, a lot of people... Uh, you know, those, those years from 18 to 21 or 22, uh, you're developing uh, in all sorts of ways that you haven't really foreseen as a schoolboy. And you're exploring faith, you're exploring philosophy, you're exploring relationships. Uh, you are uh, perhaps looking at how to interpret poetry, uh, literature, and all of those, I think, come together in a mix where your development is, is, not, a, is not a sort of steady uh, process. It's a, bit, um, uh, it's a bit random. And I think, like so many people, I, I was in that category. Hmm. I think I'm still in that random phase of my life, if I'm, if I'm <laughs> honest. I think, I think it's uh, one of those uh, perpetual things for me. So, so you... On graduating, you start to work in Parliament and you worked your th way through to the, the clerk's office and all the way to the top of being the clerk of the, the House of Commons. Just to explain, the clerk sits in front of the Speaker of the House uh, with the government benches to the right and the opposition benches to the left. Uh, what exactly was your role when Parliament was sitting? The Speaker has a conference every day when the three most senior clerks at the table, led by the clerk of the house and accompanied by the sergeant at arms, uh, communications people, uh, speaker's secretary, and so on, they go through the business of the day and try and spot the elephant traps. Uh, and there are other things as well as to which amendments might be selected, uh, whether an urgent question should be granted, whether that's the day to do it or whether you should wait and see if the situation develops and grant it the next day. 
So it's a current awareness process of what is going to take place in the chamber over the rest of the day. You talk in terms of elephant traps in the House of Commons. Typically, what kind of thing might blindside the Speaker uh, and require the intervention of the clerk? I'll give you an example, uh, which I I remember from my time as clerk of the House. Um, There was a debate um, which was initiated by the opposition into the uh, behaviour or the conduct of the then Culture Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. And it was alleged that he had behaved improperly in awarding a a contract or a license to one of the broadcasters and that he had not told the truth to the House. And uh, Chris Bryant, great uh, doughty defender of Parliament and its rights, made a speech and he finished it by pointing at Jeremy Hunt and saying, you lied to Parliament. Now, normally, lying to Parliament is the complete no-no. Uh, you, you'll be shut up or you'll be told to leave by the Speaker if you make such an allegation. And the then Speaker, John Burko, was completely at a loss. Uh, this really did come out of left field. But of course, the logic is that if you've got a debate which is about, solely about, whether an individual member did or did not lie to the House, then of course you've got to allow the allegation. Because if you didn't, if you ruled it out of order, you couldn't have the debate. So I whipped round and I said, that's fine, Mr. Speaker. Uh, That's the reason I explained it in a couple of sentences. He made a ruling and we went on. But the House was in absolute, uh, absolute fury. It was very full. And uh, it's rather difficult to um, either to formulate your view in uh, on complicated matters if you've got uh, 400 people shouting in the same room. Um, and it's equally difficult to try and communicate that to the speaker. But that's a perfectly, uh, it's a perfectly good example of something wholly unpredictable where you really earn your money by getting it right on the spot. Hmm. You've mentioned lies in Parliament. And since your time, since your retirement as clerk to the House, we've seen many MPs, ministers, even the Prime Minister, sanctioned uh, by Chris Bryant's um, committee um, for a range of scandals, including telling lies, receiving cash for, for influence, and bullying, to name just a few examples. When I listen to public opinion and voting intentions, we're about to see um, two by-elections this week as we record this. I'm dismayed to hear the vox pop from people on the street who are completely disengaged from politics. And we hear them say, oh, they're all the same. Why bother voting? As Christians, we're asked to pray for our leaders. To my mind, that means being politically engaged, politically informed. Is there anything you can say to encourage us to be better informed and to vote in in the forthcoming local and general election that we're going to have inevitably later this year? It's something that worries me profoundly. And it's not just about the bad bad apple. That's bad enough. Uh, And people behave in a way, whether it is financial, whether it is sexual, bullying, whatever it is, 
um, which I think comes from a sense of uh, an entirely unwarranted sense of entitlement as an elected representative. If you're an elected representative, you're not entitled. You take on a duty, and the duty is of service. And that is something that you've got to reflect in your life. And that is where perhaps the uh, Christian ethic uh, comes to uh, support that process, or ought to. What worries me very much is that we have seen a decline in our constitutional certainties, whether it is the shabby tactical prorogation of Parliament, which Mr. Johnson engineered, which was found to be unlawful by the Supreme Court, whether it is the very, very poor quality of legislation, and even poorer quality of scrutiny in the House of Commons, although the House of Lords does its bit, I'm very glad to say, there is a disconnect which has grown. It may have been growing for 20 years, but I think it's become especially acute over the last five or six years. My good friend Peter Hennessy, the historian, uh, wrote a book with uh, Andrew Blick um, called The Bonfire of the Decencies, which focuses on some of the things that have gone wrong over the last few years. And I think that's a, that's a very good shorthand for what has been happening. Now, if the result of that is that people do get disconnected, then that is a terrible thing for our polity. It's a terrible thing for the quality of the people who represent us, because you've got to encourage good people, able people, to go into politics, and they won't be if there is this constant storm of insult. Uh, I think, actually, that social media have got a big part to play. And I know of a number of uh, members who are members when I was uh, still in post, uh, who are, are just not going to stand again because the pressure on them, on their families, the, the mindless uh, insults that they get, they, they say, well, why should I put up with this? Now, if all that results in people not going and voting, then we lose any hope of turning that round. And democratic uh, involvement is absolutely key to our system of government. And if we don't do that, then whatever government we elect, whether it's Labour, Conservative, whether it's a hung parliament and another coalition, then it will be without the sort of check and balance of expectation which ought to be on any government. And that, that really does worry me a lot. And so if we see a continual decline in, in voter turnout, we, we will introduce a further randomness into the, into the, the, the elected MPs. They won't command a mandate from, from the majority of the, the population, that, that's for sure. Should people, should we be going to the hustings to listen to the, 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 the people who are putting themselves up for election in our, in our constituencies? Should we be understanding their moral character as well as the political stable they come from? Uh, you know, politics has always been a tribal uh, affair 
And I wonder whether now we should be selecting people on the basis of their moral character as much as their political party. I think it's all of those. I think that the results of where we are now, uh, what we need to try and do, and I think this goes some way towards answering your question, is we need to deal with the polarization of politics because things are not just black and white. They are complex. We're dealing with people as individuals, whether they are the voters and their families or whether they are the people who are striving to represent them. And the habit of polarization, where you will give absolutely no credit to your opponent for an element of what he or she is putting forward, um, I think would be, it, it, it's going to make a bad situation even worse. And what I would like to see, although I don't have much hope of it at the moment, is that I would like to see the election campaign fought in a much more understanding, tolerant, and dare I say a Christian way. At the moment, the signs are very, very bad because the spinners on all sides are concocting stories, insulting stories. You know, is it the prime minister's wife's tax affairs? Is it Starmer's commitment to anti-Semitism? Whatever it is. Now, those aren't actually the things that worry people. The things that worry people, I do some volunteering for a food bank. The things that worry millions of our fellow citizens of putting food on the table, of walking the streets safely, of having the possibility of having their own house. Um, it's not, it's not the substance of polarization. And the degree to which we can walk away from that will test us as to what sort of mature democracy we are. And so parliamentarians now seem to be more and more fixated on, on the, the, the presentation of, of a lot of these secondary issues, if you like, rather than actually solving the problems that, that are facing the, the, the people of the country. I completely agree with that. The whole of our politics, though, is adversarial the, the, in terms of the constitution, the way our voting system works, the way even the, the House of Commons is 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 laid out, is an adversarial system. So do we really have any hope of having that more collegiate approach to problem solving that you're alluding to? I, I would be very depressed if I thought the answer to that should be no. Uh, I think if people realise the prize that is there, for a more consensual approach to politics, um, having tolerance and courtesy to people who do not agree with you uh, is a really important thing. I remember the, the late, very sadly um, lost former Lord Chief Justice, Igor Judge, who was a good friend of mine, um, saying to me once, um, two people can disagree violently Without, a, without either of them being unreasonable. And I think it is preserving the reasonableness of discourse, which is the challenge that we all face. Which of these topics has not been covered on premierchristianity.com? UFOs, 
near-death experiences, Doctor Who, Christ's Return, The Faith of Celebrities, and Andrew Tate. Trick question. We don't shy away from any topic. We cover faith as it affects us in daily life and give you the bigger picture. PremierChristianity.com Special podcast subscription offer at PremierChristianity.com slash podcast. Bringing things up to date in terms of what's going through the House of Lords at the moment, you'll be aware, of course, that the Rwanda bill is going through the Lords uh, and the government is anxious that it that the Lords will unpick it and make it impossible for flights to Rwanda to take off before the next general election. Um, there's a feeling among some people that um, that this is another example of kind-hearted, well-meaning, lefty lawyers, we, we've heard the phrase, thwarting the will of the people, uh, that the government is expressing something that it wants to achieve, and that there are a whole range of forces ranged against the passage of this bill in particular. And uh, that would include our own Supreme Court. Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, has called for the Supreme Court to be brought back into the House of Lords. We're hearing that international law, international courts shouldn't have any jurisdiction in the UK. How do we untangle this mess of, of, of the lawmakers and, the, and those authorities that are, are, are keeping us within national and international law? It's a it's a real tangled mess, isn't it? And, and I'd just like to know your opinion on how we constitutionally find our way through that mess. Well, I did speak on the second reading debate of the Rwanda bill uh, 10 days ago. Um, I, I was not, it may not surprise you to hear, I was not supportive. <laughs> I did begin my speech by saying that were it not for the thousands and thousands of human tragedies and broken lives that lie behind the problem which that bill is trying so clumsily to solve, it would be comic. And if somebody had said to you a year ago, well, we're going to send uh, our asylum seekers to Rwanda, the, the reaction would be to say, where? Rwanda? You can't... In John McEnroe's words, you cannot be serious. Um, so I think that it is relatively easy to, to answer your question, to unpick the constitutional, uh, the apparent constitutional confusions. Um, and it goes back to what I was saying a moment ago about polarization and sloganization, because this is stop the boats. Now, great, uh, I, I would have hoped that a competent government would have been able to stop the boats long ago, um, whether it would be the reaching of a, a really good diplomatic agreement with the French or by some other means. But the whole thing appears to have been characterized by a chaotic approach to policymaking and then to implementation of the policy. So the government has been backed, or it has backed itself, into the stop the boats corner. And indeed, the Prime Minister put that together with reducing inflation and the NHS waiting list and various other things uh, in the package of, of matters on which he wished to be judged. And that, in turn, has given stop the boats, or send them to Rwanda, a 
mantra uh, quality where if you support the government, and let's say if you are uh, a fully paid up <laughs> conservative member of the House of Commons, uh, that is what you want to see. And anybody who stands in the way of that is um, getting in the way of what must happen. Now, I think that the Prime Minister's remark about the Lords frustrating the will of the people was incredibly misjudged. I mean, I hope that it was not his words, but perhaps some uh, inexperienced staffer in number 10. But the will of the people, rubbish. This has never been in an election manifesto. Nobody has had a, we haven't had a referendum on it. It is okay. I accept that it was passed by the uh, democratic elected House of Commons. But what it means is that we are proposing to do something that is not uh, acceptable in international law. And the European Convention on Human Rights, people forget that we drafted it. The British drafted it. Uh, it. This is not something which evil foreigners are imposing on us. This is something which we were absolutely instrumental in introducing as a way of making international relations more civilized and treating people properly. Um, so to say that in some way, wanting to see that um, observed uh, in this present case is, is nothing short of bizarre. Uh, and I find it very difficult to understand. Uh, it's very interesting that um, the Archbishop of Canterbury and several bishops have expressed strong opposition. But I think that is, it's partly, of course, on the legal side, but they are also concerned about the quality of the operation of the state of Rwanda and whether, for example, there is a risk of refoulement, as they call it, which is sending uh, asylum seekers on to another place where they may suffer persecution or worse. Uh, and I think that that is a thoroughly uh, principled stand to take. Most people will recognise the House of Lords probably from one event every year, and that, that being the, the state opening of Parliament where the, the monarch uh, delivers the, the, the king's speech. We see there the government present, we see the monarchy present, and we see the church present in the form of the the bishops who are uh, who sit in the House of Lords. So we see these three elements coming together. Prince William has recently said that he would like an even less formal coronation when that comes than his father, and certainly much less than his mother, the late Queen Elizabeth. And he's even intimated that he, he's not sure about wishing to be the, the head of the Church of England. Is this the moment we should be thinking about the disestablishment of the church? Is this um, is this a good idea? Is this something we should embrace or or row back from? I I think I'm agnostic. The key question to ask is: Well, what do you expect to get from it? Where where is the advantage to the state, to the church, to individual? Christians, given that church attendance has been on a downward trajectory over the last 10, 20, 30 years. 
will it really make a difference? Now, if you do disestablish, then, of course, you would have to lose the bishops from the House of Lords. Uh, and that may be, it could be done as part of Lords reform, but it may well be uh, that it's the sort of constitutional change which an incoming government is not ready for in the first session of Parliament and almost certainly not in the second session were they to be re-elected. So uh, I find it difficult. It, it, it would be very complex to achieve. And as we were speaking a moment ago about the Rwanda bill, it would take out of the House of Lords um, a body of faith-led, faith-driven individuals who, by virtue of their office, are able to uh, contribute that perspective. And I often say that uh, the House of Lords, of course, it's appointed, it's not territorial, we don't have constituencies, but the people who are closest to having constituencies are the bishops, because they know what's going on on their patch. They know about food banks, about um, uh, domestic violence, about all the things which the church is there to comfort people if they suffer and to try and uh, make the environment in which they live more benign. So I would say that's a very substantial plus at the moment to have the bishops in, and I should be very sorry to lose them. In terms of the, the, the makeup of the House of Lords, of course, this in, in itself is a is a very current question in terms of the, the right of, of retiring prime ministers to uh, to put forward uh, potential new members to the house to the chamber and it's the largest second chamber in the world i believe is that sustainable uh, i don't think it is and i very much hope that the incoming prime minister if there is a change of government I don't think we can expect it from the current government because they haven't done anything about it. Indeed, they've operated the system in a way which has attracted a great deal of opprobrium, almost contempt in terms of the appointment of individuals to be members of the House of Lords. I would like to see the House of Lords Appointments Commission put on a statutory basis so that they have the job of assessing whether a proposed candidate has the time, has they can contribute real expertise rather than being a politician. It's the old thing, isn't it? If the answer to a question is more politicians, it's the wrong question. Um, but I speak as a crossbencher, and around me on the crossbenches is an extraordinary array of talent and achievement, um, which I think is only to the good in terms of the way the House of Lords operates. I'd end uh, the by-elections for hereditary peers. I think an incoming government will be under a lot of pressure to uh, complete, not complete uh, Lord's reform, but to do phase two by uh, ejecting the hereditary peers. But I think we've certainly got to reduce the numbers in the House and we've got to improve the route that is taken to bring new members in. I'd like to turn to another topical issue that has a constitutional dimension, and that is Northern Ireland. 
we've seen that Northern Ireland was at the forefront of much of the, the controversy around Brexit in terms of our border control. Now we see that power sharing instalment has been returned. We have the first Sinn Féin First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, of the devolved government. And some of those Brexit issues haven't yet been resolved. In your mind, is is re- reunification of the island of Ireland now inevitable? And, and what are the constitutional implications of this? The Northern Ireland Act says, I think it's in Section 1, that uh, the Secretary of State may order a border poll if he judges that it is there is a general wish to have one. So initiating that is and remains statutorily in the hands of the government of the day. You're quite right. The new First Minister did say something about uh, uh, a unified Ireland within a decade. I think it will be a very difficult problem to address because the mismatch of industrial activity of the of populations the way in which uh, the future relationship of a unified ireland with great britain um not northern ireland anymore but with great britain would be managed would be immensely complicated and the sort of thing we've been seeing and talking about you know a border down the middle of the irish sea and the rest will be as nothing to those two states finding their way uh, in mutual independence. I'm slightly, uh, perhaps I'm slightly uh, party pre on this because my sister lives in County Mayo on the very far western coast of the uh, Republic of Ireland. Again, I, I just wonder how desired that is by the reunification by the population of Ireland, but if there were a border poll, we'd find out. And presumably, accede to the wishes of the of the of the poll. Yeah, I think we, <laughs> I think possibly we should learn from Brexit. Um, when the Brexit bill was going through the referendum bill, there were amendments uh, to the effect that there had to be a minimum turnout and there had to be a minimum margin. And that, given the uh, national angst, doesn't matter which side you were on, uh, whether a lever or a remainer, but the national angst that has followed, and indeed shows no sign really of going away, might have been avoided if there had been a clearer cut and more widely accepted result. So the same may hold true of a border poll. One of the aspects of your job, which I'm guessing was quite an enjoyable aspect, was that you would advise the monarch, that you would take lunch, uh, as as was then with the with Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen. I wonder if there's anything you can tell us about those meetings that that it will be appropriate to share, that it would uh, give us some idea of her character, uh, some of the things you shared together? <laughs> well, uh, it, it wasn't, a, you know, it was only from time to time, but I must say, uh, I, I love talking to her. I mean, what an extraordinary individual. We were so lucky for 70 years to have her as our sovereign. And it, it does seem that 
the king has started off in the same mold and with the same values and intentions. Um, I, I must be perhaps a little cautious about what I do say, but I, I will recount one story. I was sitting, uh, I went to one of her little lunches, as they were called. So just six people, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, and I was sitting on the Queen's right. And as we sat down to lunch, she turned to me and she said, now, she said, rather strictly, like rather strict but beloved aunt, uh, now, she said, there's something I've been wanting to ask you. Do you think we should have a written constitution? And as you can imagine, this was rather a fast fall to be bold in the first over. So I said, well, ma'am, um, I'm afraid I don't think I can answer a question about the Constitution when I'm sitting next to part of it. And she roared with laughter and we talked about racing. <laughs> and I think her sense of humour was well known. And uh, uh, but also her, her grip on the issues of the day. You know, she was very much engaged with the red boxes and... Uh, and took her role very, very seriously in that respect. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, work was part of duty, and duty was seamless and and permanent. Um, so I think again we were very we were very lucky there. And of course, she ended up. You only got to look at um, prime ministerial memoirs. Of course, they don't go into the detail of those weekly audiences with the sovereign quite rightly. But they do speak of those occasions almost as therapy, because you're talking, you're having an extended conversation with somebody you know will never, ever leak, and with somebody you know does not want your job. And I think the combination of the two, uh, all prime ministers who've experienced that, uh, have found it uh, wonderfully liberating in a way and quite right too I, there's got to be somebody that the prime minister with all the tensions and pressures that he or she experiences day to day can actually within bounds unwind with and mm -hmm. express worries and concerns and doubts i think that's a marvelous part of our constitution as we come towards a close, I'd like to bring us up to date. You're now living in Herefordshire. Uh, your wife, Jane, is a, a, an Anglican priest. Uh, you both have an active role in the diocese, with you chairing the fabric committee of the cathedral. We've speculated before, you and I, over the, uh, over the surprising uh, popularity in cathedral worship, attendance at cathedral uh, services. I wonder whether you as a musician and an organist can speak to the role of music in that particular increase in interest in, in the cathedral. As you, as you know, Teddy, I, I'm chairman of the Royal College of Organists. And one of the things that we do, among the many things we do, is to encourage the standard of performance. And we have our... Uh, levels of achievement, ARCO, the associate, the fellowship, the, the golden prize, of, uh, uh, which is awarded only to people who've undergone a very serious and difficult set of exams. So the quality of music is something that means a great deal to the college. 
Uh, but of course, we are also very keen to promote the organ not in ecclesiastical surroundings. Um, naturally, because of the way that things have developed over the years, most organs and almost all, very large number of very good organs are in churches and cathedrals. So it is very good to see music playing a part in those institutions. I think we're very lucky at Hereford because we have a wonderful uh, master of the choristers, Geraint Bowen, and a superb executant, a superb concert organist in Peter Dyke, the deputy. Uh, and it makes a, I think it makes a, a terrific difference because people can come to a cathedral uh, and I think an element in increased cathedral attendance is that they can do so in a relatively anonymous way. You can't walk into a small uh, parish church and expect to pass unnoticed. And in a way, that's very good because it can contribute to community cohesion and so on. But you could also feel that, well, if I go to a service there, I'll probably be asked to go on the flower rotor or something like that, whereas cathedrals are much uh, more forgiving in terms of what they demand from the people who attend services. But there is no doubt that music is a wonderful, wonderful enhancer of, of faith. And you see people coming out of a, a magnificent, perhaps with movements from a Haydn mass between elements of the service, and you see people coming out, and they, they really are, they're, they're, they're exalted. <laughs> and if music can do that, and if music can do that in an ecclesiastical setting, then great, that's terrific. Certainly, choral evensong tradition within Anglican cathedrals is, is astounding, and, and some of the most sublime uh, worship experiences I've had have been within the context of of a of a well sung choral even song, and this brings me finally as we talk about reports of the rural church in decline. You've already mentioned the decline in in church attendance, and the rural church perhaps has suffered more than the cities. Being involved in rural ministry with Jane, I, I wonder if you can give us any sense of hope, any signs of growth, any signs of bucking the trend, and and what sort of initiatives are are beginning to. Uh, to bear fruit in the rural church? Yes, I can. Uh, again, I'll start with, with music because I'm concerned with making music and bringing people together. We've got a little ensemble uh, of violin, cello and trumpet, uh, which I accompany on the organ in a couple of uh, three local churches. And that's good. That enhances the experience that people have. And if they know that there's going to be good music, I think they're marginally more likely to, to come and attend as worshippers. More broadly, though, there is no doubt that the paucity of or the scarcity of uh, ministers in rural parishes is a difficulty. It hasn't been helped in some dioceses by the sort of institutionalizing of roles, not pastoral roles, which has which concerns the Save Our Parish campaign 
so much. We don't in the Diocese of Hereford really have a problem with that because what we are doing is we are um, in, in our deanery, uh, we have what have been called pioneer priests and in the deanery, they take responsibility for particular um, elements of our general congregation, whether they come to church or not, uh, whether they are people who've moved into the area, their children, whether they're um, senior people who perhaps need more support and company. And Jane has been a leader in the diocese in uh, encouraging and training lay people to take a role in taking services and leading worship. And that, I think, is, is, has got to be the way that we go, because unless we suddenly get an influx of people queuing up for ordination, uh, we are going to be short of priests uh, across the board. But I can say, actually, that Growing Leaders uh, initiative has been really incredibly successful. And indeed, only the day before yesterday, I was playing for a, a service with my favourite trumpeter, uh, which was led by uh, a lay leader who five years ago could never have seen herself in that role. And she did it incredibly well. It was inclusive, inviting, warm, dignified. And uh, we know that we can do that. And I think it's something that people, it will help people to adapt to the scarcity of priests. And if it manages to bring more people into rural worship, rural churches, then it will be a thoroughly, thoroughly good thing. And it seems to me entirely right uh, that, that this should be the direction of the travel of, of the church, because uh, clericalism, if you like, is almost like saying, well, the only the only professional Christian in the building is is the priest. And of course, there's no such thing as a professional Christian. It seems to me that the Anglican priesthood has to somehow work out how to be enablers of the faith of others to become local leaders within their church communities. And that seems to me a far healthier, a far more, um, a far more orthodox Christian pos position than perhaps uh, an overly clerical position. I don't know whether you'd agree with that. Yes, I think I would. Um... It is something, I mean, it, you, you look across, and it is a divide, it shouldn't be, but it is, uh, to the nonconformist churches, uh, where the style is much closer to what you describe. And of course, here in the Welsh marches, um, there is uh, an ancient, two centuries and more, uh, tradition of nonconformism. So it may well be with the grain that people see these changes in the Church of England. I don't know, but they're pretty effective in my experience so far. Well, Sir Robert, there are 101 other things that I would like to ask you, but time prevents me from doing so. Well, thank you very much, Tony. And let me reciprocate. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and it's really kind of you to have invited me. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.